Kurt and Derek and Colleen for leading us into worship this morning. And good morning, everyone. Um, we will be in the book of Galatians this morning, um, chapter 3, uh, verses 23 through 29. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you can find it on page 974. <clears throat> I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Who are you? Who are you? How do you identify yourself? Um, my, uh, any of you guys seen the movie Overcomer? Anyone seen that? Few. Um, we recently received it as a, a Christmas gift, and um, it's a very good movie. It's from the same people who um, put out Fireproof and Courageous, so I highly recommend it to you. <clears throat> but but in this movie, and for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm not going to give too many details. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for you. But um, but uh, in the movie, um, one of the main characters is asked this very question, who are you? Um, this man was a teacher and a basketball coach, and uh, I think it was a mine that was shut down. Some business was shut down in the town, and um, this man lost a lot of his star players of his basketball team, right? So he, uh, the next year was looking great. He was looking forward to a championship, and then this... This happens. A, um, a business had shut down in town. A lot of families had to move out. Um, so uh, everything seems to be falling apart for him because of this. Um, and then by God's providence, um, he meets another man. And he's, he's telling him all about his problems and all this and how everything's falling apart. And uh, this man asks him this question. Who are you? Who are you? His first answer, as you might guess, is, well, I'm a basketball coach. You know, that seemed to be where he identified himself the most. And, and uh, this, this other man asking, what if that goes away? What if you're no longer a basketball coach, which essentially he pretty well wasn't um, anymore. He said, who are you if this goes away? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a history teacher, too. And he said, well, eventually someday that'll end. So... So then, who will you be then? Um, next answer, husband, father. He's going on down the line. And, and the man says, well, God forbid that either of those would ever be taken from you. But if they were, who are you? Who are you? And he's, and he's kind of getting frustrated at this point, And he says, uh, well, I guess a, a white American male, right? And, he, and the guy just kind of laughs. And, and then they finally, they finally get to... To the answer the man was looking for. And he says, I'm a Christian. What should have been this man's first answer was at the bottom of his list. Um, and, and this is why he, why he was experiencing so many troubles in his life because the thing he had identified himself with was, was not there any longer. So, <clears throat> one of the reasons Christian should be what we identify ourselves as, should be at the top of our list is that our identity in Christ does not fade, right? It is, it, is only, it is our only sure foundation on which to place our value and find our identity. All these other things 
uh, that we tend to find our identity in and value in work, family, sports, nationality, you just go right on down the line. All good things. All these are good things. But they are temporary. And Christ and being in Christ is forever. Right? So it's my hope um, from our time together this morning that we will see more clearly and understand more fully the new identity that we have received as believers. And that through faith in Christ, we are God's children, his adopted children in Christ. And, and I hope the benefits of this, I think, will be a greater experience of God's love in our lives and a greater experience of love for each other in relating one to another as the family of God. So before we get into our text uh, this morning, I want to just back up a little bit and uh, see where we're at in the whole scheme of the book of Galatians here and get a little context. Uh, Paul's main purpose in writing this book in this letter to these churches of Galatia, and Galatia was a region um, in what is now modern-day Turkey. Um, and, it, and he was writing it to combat um, a sect of Jewish Christians known as the Judaizers, uh, who had disrupted these churches uh, with a false teaching that simply trusting in the person and work of Christ wasn't sufficient for salvation. Uh, they were teaching that being circumcised and observance of the law was also needed uh, to be justified before Christ, to be t- declared not guilty before God. That's what justified means, to be declared not guilty. Uh, they tried to call into question Paul's being called as an, an apostle. And Paul says in, in the uh, first chapter, he, was, he did not receive it from man, but received it from revelation from Jesus himself. And, and in turn, they tried to call into question um, the very validity of his gospel. Um, and then in, in um, chapter 2, we see that he meets with the other apostles, uh, Peter, James, and John. And, um, and, and they give him the right hand of fellowship, in essence saying, yes, you're preaching the very same gospel we are preaching. Right? They validated the gospel which he was preaching. And so uh, at the end of chapter 2, Paul begins to transition into his uh, theological defense of the gospel which he preached. And in chapter 3, he gets the uh, Galatian believers first to examine their own experience, uh, that they had received the Spirit not by doing works of the law, as these Judaizers were were saying was necessary, but um, by believing the gospel. They received it by faith, and that, that was their experience. Then he proceeded to show them that this was the case from the beginning, that 430 years before the law was given, Abraham was counted righteous before God. For believing God, he was reckoned as righteous. Right? Um, For believing the promises of God. And through the law, and though the law has no power to save, it does play a part in our salvation. It is the thing that shows us our need for a Savior. So, now we're to where our, our focal text is for this morning. And let's read together that. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So three things I want us to see from our passages this morning. Excuse me. His first, from verses 23 and 24, what we are without faith. And then second, from verses 25 and 26, what we become by faith. And then third, the results of our new identity in Christ. So, what we are without faith. Read with me again verses 23 and 24. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul says here that before faith, before faith, before Christ is revealed to us and received by us, we are captives and prisoners under the law. Uh, The phrase under the law um, here is synonymous with being under sin. From verse 22 in, in, the same, in the same chapter here. And, and I think um, Romans 3 verses 19 through 20. You don't have to go there. I'll, I'll read it. Kind of um, helps us to, to understand this. Um, now we know that whatever the law says. It speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Um, <clears throat> so the law makes us accountable to God and shows us we are sinners. And, and as lawbreakers, we're, we're held as con- condemned captives, prisoners under it, is what, the, what this verse is telling us. Awaiting judgment with no hope of escape in and of ourselves. Th- this is the original identity of the whole human race. In Romans, we are also told that none is righteous, for all have sinned against God and failed to meet His perfect standard of righteousness. <clears throat> Jesus underscores this inability in, in His Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew. Um, there He shows us, and it's not only our actions, it's not only our actions that condemn us, but it's our very hearts that that, that condemn us. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you have lusted after another in your heart, you have sinned against God. You have sinned against God. You are under sin. Um, he, and he goes on to say, you, you have heard it said, do not murder, but, but hatred in your heart towards your brother is, is sin against me. Right? And God knows the heart of everyone. And on the basis of, of just one of these, uh, commands. We have shown ourselves to be captives and prisoners under the curse and condemnation of sin. But, but God is not only the heart knower, he is the heart renewer also. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, we read that um, he, will, he will take out of our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that we may obey his commandments. So Paul goes on in verse 24, to say that the law acts also as a guardian, right? Uh, the Greek here 
uh, used for guardian is pedagogos. And, and um, this background that I'm giving you here, I, I, I got a lot of it from Timothy George's uh, commentary. I uh, just want to cite that. Um, the Greek word used here for guardian is pedagogos. Uh, this word could be translated disciplinarian, right? Which I think fits with the previous description Paul has just used of the law as, as making us captives and, and prisoners and imprisoning. <clears throat> um, in ancient Greece and Rome, wealthy parents would often place their newborn babies under the care of a wet nurse who in turn would pass them on to a nanny who would care for them until around age six. Then they would come under the supervision of another household servant, the pedagogos, uh, who, who remained in charge of their upbringing until late adolescence. The dominant image of a pedagogos from this time is that of a harsh disciplinarian who resorted to physical force and corporal punishment as a way of keeping those in his care in line. <clears throat> An example from antiquity describes a certain uh, pedagogue named Sosynchronies as a fierce and mean old man. Because of his physically breaking up a rowdy party, he then dragged away his young man that he was in the care of uh, like the lowliest slave. This, this, is what, this is what the law is apart from, apart from Christ. <clears throat> and delivered the other troublemakers to the jailer with instructions that they should be handed over to pu the public executioner. The ancient Christian writer Theodore of Cyrus is quoted as saying that students are scared of their pedagogues. Pedagogues. And, and well, they might have been because pedagogues are they often accomplish their task by tweaking the ear, cuffing the hands, whipping, caning, pinching, and other unpleasant means of applied correction. So, so it's clear here that Paul doesn't see the law, or Christ for that matter, as, as simply an external standard giving as an incentive for self-improvement. Um, the law is a stern disciplinarian. Uh, a harsh taskmaster that shows us that apart from Christ, we are rebellious, immature or orphans, essentially. But its purpose wasn't to keep us as orphans either. It says that the law was our guardian, our pedagogos, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Its ultimate purpose is to point us to the way of a new identity. Luther says of this purpose, with its whippings, the law draws us to Christ. The law shows us who we truly are in rebellion to God and in turn points us to what God has done to change all that and make us his adopted sons and daughters. Uh, which leads to my second point, what we become by faith. So we've seen what we are without faith and now we're going to look at what we become by faith. Read with me verses 25 and 26. But now, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, a pedagogos. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. So there is a way for us to no longer be slaves to our sin, to no longer be prisoners 
held captive under the curse and condemnation of the law, to be transferred from being an orphan under the disciplinarian to being adopted son or daughter under the love of the Father. And we see how this is accomplished in verse 26. It says it is accomplished in Christ through faith. It is accomplished in Christ through faith. So what does it mean to be in Christ, to be in union with Christ Every aspect of God's relationships to believers is in some way connected to our relationship with Christ. If you would, turn with me to, to the, um, the first chapter of Ephesians. I think this kind of drives home that point. And we'll start at, at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So right off we see that it is in Christ that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, their fullness awaiting us in heaven. Right? Verse 4 says, Even as He has chose us, even as He the Father has chose us in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God's choosing of those whom he would save to be holy and blameless before him is in Christ. Right? Verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Christ. In Christ, he predestined us as sons and daughters. God's choosing of those whom, <clears throat> for, for no other reason than his great love, he made it possible for us to be Adopted sons and daughters in Christ. Verse 7 says, In him we have, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In him, in Christ, through, through his work on the cross, paid the price to release us from our slavery to sin and covered our sins with his blood. And not only that, he, he earned the righteousness for, that we need to stand before God. He not only made the payment to cleanse us from our sins, but also made a way for have to, us to have a positive righteousness of our own. Verses 9 and 10, it says that the mystery of God's will to unite all things to himself in heaven and in earth is found in Christ. 11 through 13, it says that it is in Christ that we have attained our eternal inheritance and have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that inheritance. And then even over in chapter 2, um, that speaks of our, our spiritual condition too, that we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. But God, in Christ, made us alive. In verses 4 and 5. So speaking of our, the new birth, it is in Christ that we receive the new birth even. And are, are made new creatures. So... All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. The reason adoption into God's family is found only in Christ is because he is the only true son of God. Every single one of us from Adam and Eve to you and me have dishonored our father, have rejected our creator, and therefore we have forfeited our rights to his promises. But Jesus said he came to do the will 
of his father. And that is exactly what he did. He perfectly fulfilled the will of his father in securing salvation for his people by perfectly obeying the law, fulfilling the law for us, paying for the debt of our sin and satisfying God's wrath against it on the cross and giving the guarantee of eternal life in his resurrection. If we are to be adopted sons and, and daughters, <clears throat> if we are to be adopted sons and daughters, our faith, our trust can rest in nothing or no one but the true Son, Christ Jesus. Um, John chapter 1, verse 12 tells us to those who received him, who, who received Christ, who, who believed, who put their faith, put their trust in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. For those in my hearing today who have yet to see their need for Christ, may this be the day. May this be the day your eyes are open to the reality of your true identity apart from Christ, a slave to your sin and a prisoner under just condemnation of God. And your eyes being opened, you see beyond that and see God's love awaiting you in Christ. That God has made a way for you to go from slave to son. You simply repent, turn from your old life of sin, and turn to Christ to be right with God, that you might stand before your Father. Father, let today be the day of salvation. Cry out to God and confess to Him you are a sinner and receive the gift of Christ. Believe on His life, death, and resurrection for your justification before God and become a child of God. So, we've seen what we are without faith, what we become by faith. Now, from the remainder of our passage, we'll consider some of the results that come from this new identity in Christ. Read with me in our passage from Galatians, verses 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. <clears throat> There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're going to start with verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a beautiful picture of our union with Christ. When one's plunged beneath the water, it signifies our union with Christ in his death that we have been buried with Christ, that we have died with Christ, dying to our sin, and, and the being brought up out of the waters signifies our being raised with Christ, raised to newness of life, right? Raised in his resurrection. <clears throat> raised a new man. Faith secures our union with Christ. Faith grabs hold of Christ, and baptism signifies it in an outvisible, in an outward invisible way. <clears throat> so Paul says, for those who have received Christ inwardly by faith and outwardly profess that union through baptism as adopted sons and daughters of God have put on Christ and are to put on Christ. To put on Christ. This is the first result of our new identity that we find in our passage. We have put on Christ. We are clothed with Christ, our new self. Paul's saying here that that now that we have a new identity, we have a new way of life and purpose that reflects our union with Christ. On a basketball team, you know, whenever you have two teams out there playing, how do you know which team is which? 
by their uniform, by what they have on, right? By what they're clothed in, right? And as believers, our uniform is Christ. He's telling us to put on Christ. We are to live as Christ lived in this world, uh, to daily be putting off the old ways of the old man, the old death clothes, right? That's a daily thing we got to do. <clears throat> and putting on the new self created in Christ Jesus. As adopted sons and daughters, we are to strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like the Son through whom we've been adopted, the true Son. And this is not sinless perfection. If that were possible, then Christ died for no purpose. It is simply seeking each day to be less like the old self and more like the new self. Um, if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I'm not going to expound on this passage. I think it, it does well enough itself, but just to drive home this of putting off and, and putting on. Um, chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 5 through 15. Put to death, therefore, put off what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil de desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. These were once the pattern of your life when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, being renewed into the likeness of Christ. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, and be thankful. Beloved, love the, your Father by being more like the Son. Put on Christ, put on Christ. So, um, turn back with me, if you're in your Bibles, to Galatians 3, and, um, and we'll consider the second result of our new identity in Christ. Read with me verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, in verse 27, Paul's focus was more on the individual result of our union with Christ. You put on Christ. You put on Christ. Uh, here, in verse 28, it's more of the collective result of our union with Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So as Christians, we not only have a new individual identity in Christ, we also have a new communal identity in Christ. <clears throat> Paul is saying here that in determining whether someone belongs to the family of God, culture, rank, 
what gender they are is irrelevant. Those things are irrelevant when it comes to determining whether one is a Christian. Right? He's not saying that these things are completely in every sense irrelevant. But in terms of our salvation and being adopted sons and daughters in the family of God, they are of no matter. Right? God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him, through Abraham, he would bless all the families of the earth, not just the Hebrew people. Right? The Jewish people were instructed were entrusted with God's own self-revelation, but the message and the benefits of it were for all peoples. <clears throat> Through the promised offspring of Abraham, who is Christ, God has and is making for himself a people from every tribe, nation, language, tongue, and race. So in the church, the family of God, none of these things should ever be a barrier to fellowship. That's what Paul's getting at. The church should never be marked by social classes or cliques. We are equal in our need for salvation, equal in our inability to earn it or deserve it, and equal in the fact that God offers it to us freely in Christ. Once we have received it, our equality is transformed into fellowship, the brotherhood that only Christ can create. And remember, as I said before, it doesn't make all these irrelevant in every sense. This doesn't mean these distinctions are totally obliterated. And, and the distinctions I'd like to address a little more fully in, in, our, in our time here today is that of male and femaleness. Um, these verses are notorious for being ripped out of, out of their context to mean that there is no distinction between men and women at all whatsoever. Uh, but God is clear in the rest of Scripture that there is a distinctness in roles between men and women, especially when it comes to roles within the church, that of leadership in the church and that of husband and wife, um, roles within the home. First right? uh, Timothy 2 is clear that leadership roles in the church are to be the responsibility of men. Right? Um, he says, that do not permit man to teach or be an authority over a woman, and he, and he goes to creation to back that up, for Adam was created first, and then Eve, and it was Eve that was deceived. <clears throat> and, and if these roles aren't being filled by men, then we need to ask ourselves, what are the men doing? Why are not they filling these roles? And I, I, I'm thankful that in this church that we have a lot of men who are willing to at least strive in fulfilling these responsibilities that God has given us to, to take up the leadership within their homes and in the church. I, God has been very gracious with us in that. So, Ephesians 5, we are given this beautiful picture of how the relationship between Christ and the church relates to marriage. Um, husbands and wives are commanded to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because of their, their differing roles, they submit to each other in different ways. Um, the husband is to submit by laying down his life for his wife as Christ laid down his life for the church. He is to put down his own selfish endeavors to ensure that his wife finds their marriage a source of fulfillment and, and joyful service to the Lord. And, and it is the leadership of this type of Christ-like man that the wife is commanded to submit to in everything, just as the, the church submits to Christ. 
So in terms of our essence and dignity and value, we are all totally equal. But in terms of, of roles, we are distinct. The, 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 the roles are equally important, and they, they kind of need each other. They're complementary in that way. Um, they need each other to work right. So, um, so the roles are also equally important. Uh, we see this equality in essence and, and value and dignity, but distinctness in roles in the very being of God. We see it in the Trinity. Um, each person in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are, are equal in their essence, in their dignity, and in their value. Um, yet they, they differ in their roles, and, and we see this in, in the very plan of salvation. We see God the Father laid the plans of salvation. God the Son accomplishes the work necessary to, to fulfill that salvation. And God the Holy Spirit supplies the power to apply salvation to the believer. So, as a result of our being in Christ, we have put on Christ. We are all one, equal in terms of our identity in Christ. And now, from our Galatians text, we'll consider the third and final result of our union with Christ. Read with me verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul's reminding us here of the main issue of all of chapter 3. And that is, who belongs to the family of Abraham? Who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham? The Jews had believed they were sons of Abraham through natural descent and keeping the law. Uh, but Paul made it clear in, in verses 6 through 9 in chapter 3, that it wasn't natural descent that mattered. It was exercising the same faith as Abraham, as we've said before, that mattered. And that faith was not keeping, in keeping of the law, but in the promises of God. The law came 430 years after the promises of Abraham, and the law never was intended to give life. It was intended to reveal our sin and make us prisoners of it. And if the promised inheritance came by observing the law, then it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who trust just as Abraham did in the one offspring who would secure and fulfill all God's promises. <clears throat> Jesus the Christ, union with Christ, putting on Christ, and being baptized into Christ are different ways of portraying the same reality. The heirs of Abraham are those who belong to Christ by faith. So to conclude, brother and sister who might feel like you don't belong, may you be reassured today that you do. If you are in Christ and He in you, you belong to God. You belong to His people here and now. You belong to His people throughout history. May your feelings be trumped by the Word of God. Also ask yourself this morning, who am... Also ask yourself this morning, not only who am I, but more specifically, who am I in relating to the family of God and to other believers? Very often, we can, we can relate to another, each other more like distant cousins, five times removed, instead of brothers and sisters. So, so if, if that's you this morning, 
make it a point this year to draw closer to the family of God. Right? And as he loved us, let us love one another. For we love because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that God would make us more zealous this new year in, in loving him and each other. That he would help us to, to patiently bear one another's burdens. To humbly give and receive correction with each other when, it, when we need it. And that he would help us to faithfully proclaim the good news in both word and deed here and, and everywhere that he might add to the number of his sons and daughters. Um, I want to conclude with this quote from John Stott. So conversion, though supernatural in its origin, is natural in its effects. It does not disrupt nature, but fulfills it, for it puts me where I belong. It relates me to God, to man, and to history. It enables me to answer the most basic of all human questions, who am I, and to say, in Christ, I am a son of God. In Christ, I am united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, and future. In Christ, I discover my identity. In Christ, I find my feet. In Christ, I come home. Let us pray. Father God, um, help us to know more fully who we are in Christ. And not only to know it, Lord, but to live it. Lord, you tell us you are a jealous God. Be jealous for your bride and, and help us to know more and more each day the love that you have for us in Christ that not just know about it, but know it, Father that we might love one another more, more like you have loved us. And we might look more and more like brothers and sisters to each other and more and more like the Son. In Jesus' name, amen.